Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Calling a TV show cult is sort of cliche, but there's really no better word to describe Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was low budget, it ran late at night, and it built up a super devoted audience of fans. My guest Joel Hodgson was the show's creator. He also hosted, along with a puppet sidekick named Crow. He told me that making the show like they did, in a sort of DIY style, had real advantages. After we made the pilot for Mystery Science Theater, I had some friends at Imagineering in California, and I brought them the trailer, and they just started talking about it, and they said, how much did it cost you to make Crow? And I said, it's like eight bucks. (laughs) And they said, it would cost us $50,000 to develop this through Disney. And so, just much easier, right? Just like, man, there's a lacrosse mask, there's a bowling pin. It's just easier. It's a bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Joel Hodgson about how dealing with his own anxieties shaped his career and why his show wasn't about hating on bad films. He didn't blame them for being bad. If you've ever tried to make a movie, it's really hard. I mean, I've tried, and it's really hard. Then later I'll talk to Dr. Robert Hicks. He's the director of the Mutter Museum, and he brought along some terrifying antique medical devices to demonstrate for our audience on me. We have plugged this in, and why don't you give me your forearm and pull your sleeve back a little bit. There's fire inside there. Plus, music from the band Sprainerd and comedy from the great Hari Kondabolu. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our first guest this week is a writer, actor, comedian, and the creator of a little show called Mystery Science Theater 3000. If that name doesn't ring a bell, you've probably seen the show. Just think back to some time when you were flipping through the cable channels and you saw a terrible, terrible movie playing on screen with the silhouettes of a host and a few robots making jokes at its expense. When he joined me on stage in Philadelphia, he was in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign to bring back a new season of the show. It finished up in December, exceeding its goal with well over $6.5 million. Let's hear a little bit of a classic episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000, which includes the gang riffing on the film Teenagers from Outer Space. All you need to know is that a mean alien has vaporized a dog, and a less mean alien has taken its former owner to see those charred skeletal remains. This couldn't be Sparky. Sparky had skin. I know. He must have been here and his collar tag fell off. That's all. Hey, wake up and smell the collie. You are not familiar with the focusing disintegrator ray? Yeah, my aunt has one. It projects an isolated beam which separates the molecules of living material in chain reaction. It slices. It dices. Joel Hodgson joined me on stage in front of a live audience at Johnny Brenda's in Philadelphia. 
Thank you. Welcome back to the show, Joel, and, and congratulations on the already millions of dollars that the uh, new season of Mystery Science Theater 3000 has oh, raised. Thanks. Yeah, it's been like about eight days, and it's going good. Yeah, so go to the website, bringbackmst3k.com, to find out more about it. Wow, we're plugging already, Joel? I, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be like that pretty much. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so... We were talking a little bit backstage about um, the unusual path that your career took. I think because people often know you best from Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, they might not know or might have forgotten that when you were a very young man, like in your early 20s, you had a stand-up comedy career that was notably successful. You were on David Letterman like five or six times, you were on Saturday Night Live five or six times, and then you decided to basically leave show business as we know it and move back to Minnesota. What was that about? I think it's about stress, you know? Um, I think that to be really creative, you have to avoid stress, and there's a lot of it in show business, so... I think that had a lot to do with it is you have to feel safe to be creative. I think a lot of people who are creative thrive on stress though. I mean I think a lot of people um, put yeah, themselves the in a stressful loud ones. <laughs> there's a loud there's a contingency of loud comics that say you have to suffer, you have to be nervous, you have to have some trouble in your life and I think that shapes the conversation so much, but I don't think it's really true. I'd say that's like a twenty percent, and so um, most of it is just avoiding that. I mean, did you feel like when I mean you had, as I said, kind of extraordinary success for such a young guy? Um, did you feel like you were caught up in the weird competition of the stand-up comedy boom? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I, I, I kind of felt like ultimately I had gotten to do everything I wanted to do. All I, when I was my senior year of college was when Letterman started as the late night show, and that's all I wanted to do. And um, I got to do it like within about a year after I saw it. And then things like Saturday Night Live and the Young Comedian Special was like all this kind of gravy. But the only thing left back then, this is like 1982, was to be in a sitcom. And I didn't think there were any sitcoms that were funny back then. So that was all that was available. And so I just decided to go back to Minneapolis and kind of think it over. But um, I really thought I was going to quit and, um, you know, just do something else. What did you think? Did you have some idea of something else that you were going to do? Um. No, not especially. Um, I thought I'd be a toy designer or something. There's a really strong group of... um, Because Tonka was in Minneapolis and um, a lot of actual toy designers, so I kind of got to spend a lot of time with them, and they were very nice. And I thought I'd try that for a while, but that was even much harder than stand-up. So, um, yeah, so I didn't do that. And I guess everything changed when... um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld came to town and I had met him in LA and I watched him do his set and I was just kind of giving him my impression of what I thought he was doing or what I saw. It was the pictures he was creating. And he said, oh, you got to help me write my, my HBO special. 
And so um, that was like a really good experience. And he let me kind of do art direction and get involved with the pictures. And um, that had a big influence on me. I had a really good experience. And he wasn't um, negative, and he, he was a very positive person who worked hard and did a good job. So he had a lot to do with me wanting to do it again. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my conversation with Joel Hodgson, which was recorded as part of our live show at Johnny Brenda's in Philadelphia. Was part of the creation of Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, creating a television show, a funny professional television show that also had low stakes and no show business baloney because it was basically like the simplest, cheapest television show you could ever make. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was really part of it. Um, a little bit more of the Seinfeld story is um, I had written this idea that was a science fiction feature that was a comedy. Um, and I pitched it to Seinfeld because he was the most famous guy I knew. And this is before he, his series, but he was a really good stand-up and doing Letterman and Carson and all that. And I pitched it to him and he just said, you know, this isn't for me. This is for you. And he kind of got me thinking, oh, you know, I was trying to impose... Um, you know, what I wanted to do on him. And so I started to kind of go, oh, you know, maybe I'm just, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe I want to make a show and I can't admit it, you know, or I have to be the guy, I have to be the lead guy. And so um, I did start with that theory, like, um, what's the cheapest show? Because um, you have to avoid stress, right? Um, If you write a really expensive show, then you have to talk people into it and you have to convince them it's going to be great. And I don't feel like I can do that. You know, I can show you, but I can't talk you into it. And so um, that was kind of it. It was like, I I think I started with the premise like, uh, well, I want to do this locally. So what are local TV shows that I remember? And they were always like monster movie, guys hosting monster movies at night or people hosting um, cartoons in the morning. And so that's kind of the premise is like, you know, there's bad movies are usually, we're usually public domain. So I knew they could be cheap and nobody would um, get mad if we riffed on them. Was part of the attraction of putting together Mystery Science Theater 3000 that you got to build weird stuff? Like that you got to make weird physical things, the robots and the sets and all of these things that were so distinctive aesthetically? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pleasure in it, you know, it feels really good to make stuff, and, um, it's, again, it's avoiding stress, it's like, after we made the pilot for Mystery Science Theater, I had some friends at Imagineering in, in California, and I brought them the trailer, and they just started talking about it, and they said, how much did it cost you to make Crow? And I said, it's like eight bucks. <laughs> and they said, it would cost us $50,000 to develop this through Disney. And so, just much easier, right? <laughs> just like, man, there's a lacrosse mask. There's a bowling pin. It's just easier. What was so scary to you about the prospect of that stress? I couldn't tell you. I mean, it's just, I don't believe, I don't, 
it's not my skill set. You know, it's, I've always been really rewarded for showing people things and not talking to people about things. I haven't ever, like, talked anybody into anything. So, but I have shown them pictures, and, like, all, my whole life I've been able to do that. So I think that's it. I, could, I just had enough experiences prior to that um, trying to be in the room and talk these executives into an idea, and I could just not feel like I was motivating them. I wasn't saying the right things, or, or the way I am made them doubt the message. So I had to kind of go this other path. And there's a lot of us like that. You know, there's obviously a lot of people that aren't particularly good at that, but that can make things. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Joel Hodgson. He's the creator of the TV show Mystery Science Theater 3000. I feel like in the age of the Internet, we are used to the idea that if you create something that's really meaningful to people, even if it's really meaningful to a very small number of people, that you will feel that response almost immediately. Because of social media and even just the idea of emailing people, mm. there's a sort of expectation of connection on the Internet. But in you know 1989-ish, when you started Mystery Science Theater 3000, I guess people just like still send a postal money order to five dollar for five dollars to a fan club address or something like that. At what point did you realize the depth of the impact that the show was having on people? I mean, number one is you don't make a TV show unless you think people are going to like it, right? Like people always go, "You must have been so surprised when people like Mystery Science Theater. It must have been like a party." And you just go, no, that, that's why you do it. You think you got a, something that'll work that's commercial, you know? But um, I literally have never thought that anything I was doing was going to work. Really? Come on, wait a minute. Yeah, no and I've been born, born out this, every single time. <laughs> I know, but listen, this whole thing is based on acting. Like, on, I mean, not acting, but the action of wanting to do something. Do you know what I mean? I was just thinking about that when I was watching you. Like, I'm going... You're here because you acted on it for whatever reason. Like you said, oh, I want to do radio or I want to do a podcast. Then you like put yourself in that position. So it is about the motion of it. You know, it's not thinking or talking. It's doing. Um, but the first, back to your question, it's like um, the moment where we noticed that it was going to work or it might work was uh, Jim Mallon, who's my ex-partner, was like, said, oh, let's set up voicemail. You know, this is back when they had voicemail machines. This is like in 1988. And so he said, let's set up a voicemail machine at the channel and let's flash the number on the screen and see what happens. And it was like the next morning, it, it was an hour-long message tape and it was full. And people just were calling in saying either, what are you doing? Or like, am I losing my mind? Or this is awesome, keep doing it. You know, but people were reacting. So that was the first moment, and that's when we did the information club. And then we had like a 1,000 people in it in Minnesota. And a lot of it has to do with Minnesota, too, the unique uh, the kind of culture that's there. They're very encouraging uh, for some reason. Like, they're just like, if they like you, they'll really let you know. They're also profoundly emotionally distant. <laughs> I've been to... Look, I work in public radio. I've been to Minnesota. Yeah, you got to go there, right? I spent literally a month after the first time I went to Minnesota for work wondering why everyone that I worked with hated me. 
And then my wife said, do you think it's because they're Minnesotans? And I was like, oh, right, okay, yeah. got it, okay, yeah. That, that is a huge component, but when they're out and they're together and they've been drinking, it's <laughs> a whole different thing. Like, they're very exhortive, actually, in public. But yeah, there is that wild, passive-aggressive element to Minnesotan, too. What was, the, what was the greatest pleasure for you of making Mystery Science Theater 3000? Um... There's been a lot of experiences. I, it's been funny because the last seven or eight years, I've really come out and done a bunch of stuff, and kind of, I really felt like I wanted to do it again, and 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 that looked like a possibility. And so, um, and I, we should and we should mention that um, you know ha- halfway ish through the run of Mystery Science Theater three thousand, you left the show. Yeah, and that's now you know we're talking about fifteen, twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, yeah. So um, I did all these shows with uh, original cast from Mystery Science Theater. We did these live shows called Cinematic Titanic. So we did like 100 live shows where we riffed on movies. And that was great. But the really cool thing was just getting to meet the people. Really, we, I had never met all these people that liked the show and kind of heard their stories and why they liked it. And who, just getting to see what they looked like and kind of meet them and shake their hands and stuff. So... That was kind of uh, the, my favorite part so far. It's just kind of meeting them and hearing why they like it. One of the things that I, I think I've understood more as I've gotten older and watched Mystery Science Theater 3000 as an adult, and also I think having uh, met folks like you and, and, and Frank Conniff and um, uh, Bill Corbett and Kevin Murphy is – I think that people think of Mystery Science Theater 3000 as the birthplace of uh, a certain kind of snark. Um, And as I watch it through adult eyes and as I have talked to the folks who've made it, including yourself, the thing that has struck me the most is the amount of very sincere love that you have for the act of creation of something that like in some ways, like the driving force of mystery science theater 3000 is not so much like, look at these people that made this terrible movie, but in fact, like look at these people who so loved creative expression that they did their jobs, even in the context of a total garbage disaster. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, it's true. I mean, the coloring book version of Mystery Science Theater is that we're like serving justice on bad movies. Like, bad movies do not belong in the world and we're there to punish them. And it's not true at all. I mean, they're a function of this bigger group of people making movies and it's not anybody's fault. And if you've ever tried to make a movie, it's really hard. I mean, (laughs) I've tried and... It's really hard. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's like restaurants. You know, everybody goes, I enjoy a good meal. I could make a restaurant. I could be that guy. How hard can it be? And um, I think that's that way about movies. I know what a good film is. Why can't these do it? You know? But it, the truth is it's just a function. It's like a million things that you're collaging together at once and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't it has doesn't always have to do with people's talent um so yeah i i think um 
to me, I looked at Mystery Science Theater as it's like a variety show we built on the back of another show. That's what it is. And it's, um, it has to be sustainable, you know, and, and you can't, you're really uh, companions. You're sharing the screen with the audience, and so you're companions with them. And people don't want to spend time with you if you're an You have to be, like, nicer than that. Otherwise, it, I mean, you may get laughs, but it's not sustainable. Like, people don't want to spend 90 minutes with someone who's a jerk, so. And I think in your case, I mean, you're talking about you've created something where not only did people want to spend 90 minutes with you, but they've really wanted to spend 25 years with you. Like, you are, um, I think for people who love Mystery Science Theater 3000, you and the other folks who made that show are, whether literally or not, like, friends, Wow, well, I, you know, I, t I appreciate that. I, I, th I think it's just we, we really wanted to respect the audience and just really wanted to... And, and, and it was so... Um, we were just trying to amuse ourselves more than anything because it was the new land. It was like there was no movie riffing show before Mystery Science Theater. And so you're confronted with um, filling up 90 minutes. And so... There were no, there was no guidebook, and so we just kind of used everything, and and it kind of worked out. Um, but yeah, we just, I think it was just really simple because we just didn't. There was a big value, um, you know. This is right when cable was starting, and it's like um, it was cable was kind of like sitting at the little kids' table at Thanksgiving back then, <laughs> right? Because networks was where everything was going on. It wasn't like you know, Comedy Central was this giant vanguard where, oh my God, it like kicks the network's butt and on a regular basis. It wasn't the case back then. And so we were kind of unnoticed and um, um, yeah. I'll continue my conversation with Joel Hodgson after a break. We'll find out why he waited until now to bring back Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, businesses can avoid time-consuming trips to the post office. Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then the mail carrier picks it up. You'll even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com for a four-week trial and special offer, including postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter Bullseye. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the How to Do Everything podcast with Mike and Ian. Among other things, they can help you find giant insects, talk about the stock market, and welcome extraterrestrials. Mike and Ian are here for you. How to Do Everything is modern life lessons from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my conversation with Joel Hodgson, which was recorded as part of our live show at Johnny Brenda's in Philadelphia. Joel created the TV show Mystery Science Theater 3000 in the late 80s, and it ran for over a decade. Now he's bringing it back with a new cast, thanks to a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign. I asked Joel why he waited until now to do it. Oh, um, really, it's just that we got the rights to it. It was like it, we've been working on this a really long time, like five years we've been talking about it. I, I'm partners with Shout Factory, 
Shout Factory is a label for both video and music that's like a reissue label for things that are really special to people, basically. Yeah, they just have this great knack of finding these like things that people love. Like, like if you like Mr. Magoo, you can get all the Mr. Magoo box set, you know, which I do. And, um, so there, and so for some reason over time, they've really, the fan, our fan base really loves them because they got the tone right and they've been kind of communicating while we haven't been able to. And so, uh, that was a really logical thing, um, to get together with them. When you are starting a new series of Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, why have you decided to have a new cast on the show? Oh, um, to me that's easy. Like I always felt like that was the concept. Like it was like Doctor Who or Bond or Saturday Night Live. Like you just keep rolling things over. That's why when I left, I didn't mind. It's not. That's why I didn't like. Oh, we're shutting this down. I'm leaving. Instead, I thought, no, this is the way it should be. It's meant to be refreshed with new people. And so already um, we've had two sets of hosts, two sets of puppeteers that run Tom Servo and Crow. To me, that's always what I was intending. But I think because it got canceled, it just got locked into Joel Mike. And I think people perceive that as a pattern. Who's, and it's not. who's your favorite? I go for, I'm, a Mike, I'm a Mike man. Yeah. 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 Were you at all afraid to revisit this, like, really special thing? Did you think that it would be, like, you know, in some way, like, putting on your Letterman jacket and going back to your old high school or something? Um, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think I'm kind of okay because I'm not going to be on camera. I'm kind of letting somebody else take the heat. <laughs> so uh, I don't have to worry about it. I think if I was, then I'd really worry about it because there's a surprising amount of people that think, oh, you're going to do it, right? And I'm going, no, I'm 55. You know, it's a young man's game. Like, put in a guy who's like 30 or something. So it's mostly like, I, the reason I say that is because... Um, 30-year-olds can spend eight hours a day absorbing media, you know, and I don't. So I think that's the key thing as far as writers and performers who are really in the world and really, like, immersed in it. You have a real-life job that is that you are some kind of rocket man. Is that correct? Um, I'm a creative lead for media uh, for a company called Kine that has a uh, novel propulsion system for satellites. Yeah, okay, cool. I just wanted to confirm that you are a rocket man. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and confirmed rocket man, Joel Hodgson. Thank you so much, Joel. Always a pleasure and an honor. Joel Hodgson goes back into production on Mystery Science Theater 3000 this year with new host Jonah Ray. Patton Oswalt, Baron Vaughn, and Felicia Day have also been added to the lineup. You can find out more at the website mst3k.com. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's show was recorded in front of a live audience at Johnny Brenda's in Philadelphia. And whenever we do the show live, we like to include some stand-up comedy. 
In Philadelphia, we were lucky to be joined by a bullseye favorite. The New York Times has called him one of the most exciting political comics in stand-up today. You've seen him on The Late Show with David Letterman, Conan, and Totally Biased. It's Hari Kondabolu. Philadelphia! It's a pleasure to be here. Philadelphia, or as we call you in New York City, the Sixth Borough. Yeah, look, I realize that sounds very condescending, but if it makes you feel better, it's just a way to insult New Jersey, right? <laughs> You're just a pawn in our war. That's all it is. <laughs> uh, I, was, uh, I saw this bumper sticker on the back of this lady's car. The bumper sticker read, If my dog doesn't like you, neither do I. Which is the weirdest way to justify racism that I've ever seen. <laughs> No, it's not me. It's the dog. It's, it's the dog that I train, but it's just the dog. Also, just strange. Why are you listening to your dog's advice? I think your dog has different priorities than you, you know? I don't think you should be listening to your dog's advice about stuff. Like, I stayed in this terrible relationship for six years. Why did you stay in it? He kept bacon in his pocket. Like, what are you doing? Stop listening to your dog. Stand-up comedy is amazing. It's an incredible art form. I'm proud to have this as a job. And the strange thing is people don't see this as a job. And I know this because people ask me what I do for a living, and I tell them I'm a stand-up comedian, and then they'll go, oh, okay. As if I said, I'm a scarecrow. Oh, you can do that for a living. Okay. I told that joke in Portland, Oregon, and I was worried I might offend somebody. Like, somebody would get up and be like, excuse me, but I'm a scarecrow. <laughs> yes, that is sustainable here. Paid mostly with quinoa and beets. I realize some of you might be thinking it's hacky to make fun of Portland at this point, but I started doing comedy in Seattle when those were local jokes, right? It's not my fault they're a national joke now, right? This predates them being a national joke. First time I went to Portland, uh, I... I was introduced to a friend of a friend. Introductions are always weird for me because my name is Hurry and people don't know how to pronounce it so it always becomes an issue. So this guy asked me what my name is. I'm like, it's Hurry. Hurry? No, it's Hurry. Hari? No, it's Hurry. Harry? I'm like, hey man, let's just make eye contact, get in close, I'll know you're talking to me. All right? <laughs> and then he gets upset. He's like, no, I want to get your name right. It's important that I get your name right because people get my name wrong all the time and I'm sick of it. I'm like, all right, man, what's your name? And he's like, my name is Dave. (laughs) Your name is Dave? No, not Dave. My name is Dave. (laughs) So I hugged him. (laughs) Here was a man who could understand my secret pain. And I said, brother, why did your parents name you Dave? And he said... Well, they didn't. They named me Dave, but last year I legally changed it to Dave. (laughs) Spelled D-E-Y-F. No. That is not my problem. That is a much different problem. That is a much larger problem. That is clearly a Portland, Oregon-based problem. There is a difference between someone slapping you and you slapping yourself. Uh, I'm going uh, to Europe soon for a tour, uh, which I'm really excited about. It's a privilege 
to travel internationally for work, but I don't really like the long lines and bureaucracy of immigration and customs. Apparently, Australia is the worst because Australia is so far from the rest of the planet that they're really strict about you not bringing in plants or fruit into their country because they're worried if foreign bodies enter Australia, they'll kill people and destroy the environment, right? Which is a very fair point because if you ask the aboriginals, they would tell you that sometimes foreign bodies enter Australia, <laughs> kill people, destroy the environment. For those of you who didn't know, the theme of my set tonight is colonialism. <laughs> which is why I am speaking only in English. <laughs> now, Australia only cares about what enters their country, right? They're only worried about the import and they're selfish. They don't care about what they export into the world. They don't care about the damage they cause. Do you know why I say this? Because how else can you explain Iggy Azalea, right? <laughs> A weapon of mass destruction sent out to destroy hip-hop America's greatest natural resource. <laughs> that joke has like two more months in it. <laughs> like Iggy Azalea's career. That joke is the Iggy Azalea's career of jokes. <laughs> Weird year uh, in racism. One of the more interesting stories, of course, uh, was the story of Rachel Dolezal, right? This is uh, the white woman who tanned her skin and permed her hair and pretended to be black, right? Which surprised me, because when I saw her picture, I didn't know she was pretending to be black. I thought she was pretending to be the lead singer of the Counting Crows. So, <laughs> it's a bit of a surprise. She pretended to be black, and somehow she ended up being the head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington. And I was like, how is this possible? And then I remembered, it's Spokane, Washington. <laughs> so they were like, is she... Ah, uh, close enough. <laughs> I was wondering, what, what was it like the first time Rachel Dolezal experienced racism as a black woman? All right, I wonder what that was like for her. Hey, go back to Africa! I wonder if she was like, oh my God, it worked. <laughs> Dear diary, today's the best day of my life. I experienced oppression. It's fantastic. <laughs> I was at a restaurant recently with my mother, and uh, we were overhearing the conversation at the table next to us. Uh, this man was angry that the waiter was speaking Chinese. It should be noted at this point, we were at a Chinese restaurant. If there's one place where a waiter should be allowed to speak Chinese, it's at least at a Chinese restaurant. You don't think it's humiliating enough that he has to pretend sesame chicken is a real Chinese dish? And of course, General So's chicken, named after that famous general, So who died valiantly fighting to get the seeds off the chicken? It's the same dish. Why are we paying more for seeds? I told this joke once, and this person came up to me after uh, the gig and said, hey, that joke's really funny, but you should know Chinese isn't a language. It's either Mandarin or Cantonese. That's true, but I don't think that was this dude's issue. I don't think this guy was like, Cantonese, I thought we were at a Mandarin place. <laughs> classically trained in Mandarin. What's this Cantonese garbage? I'm being cheated right now. Like, I don't think he was a culturally competent bigot, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> I was overhearing the conversation further. This man was making a brilliant argument about why English should be the national language of this country. Here's his argument. When in Rome, you do what the Romans do. That was the whole argument, right? Strong thesis, strong supporting information, repeat the thesis. 
It was a cliche, which offended me because I have really strong opinions as well, but I justify them with facts and logic. I don't use cliches. Like, I'm pro-choice. I have a lot of opinions about why I'm pro-choice. Lots of reasons. You don't hear me saying cliches. You don't see me up here saying, hey, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Really? That's all I have to offer you? That insensitive cliche? When in Rome you do what the Romans do doesn't even make any sense. Because Rome was an empire. You didn't go to Rome. Rome came to you. (laughs) One day you look out your window, there's a man with a funny helmet on pointing at some blueprints saying, build this. And you're like, no. And then he sticks a spear in your ear and you're like, oh, I must be in Rome. I hate how people use cliches to justify bigotry. People do this all the time. How do people justify homophobia in this country? You know, it's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve. It's a biblical scholar. (laughs) Technically, that is true, to be fair. It was Adam and Eve. But if you remember the story, it was Adam and Eve and a talking serpent. (laughs) I feel like the talking serpent throws the whole account into question. I'm not sure how true this is. There's a talking snake involved. Maybe we shouldn't base our values on a Jungle Book-type scenario. What would Baloo do? (laughs) People uh, say they care about the environment, that it's important to be green. I don't know if people really mean it. I don't. I I I question that. Because a few years ago, Sun Chips started making biodegradable bags, right? It's a nice gesture. It's a small gesture of corporate responsibility. They made biodegradable bags, right? People then started complaining that the bags made too much noise when you opened them. So then Sun Chips stopped making biodegradable bags. (laughs) Do you know what else makes a lot of noise? The end of the world! (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Good night. Hari Kondabalu. Find out where you can see him live at harikondabolu.com. After a break, we've got music from Philadelphia's own Spray Nerd. Plus, I get experimented upon by the director of the Mutter Museum. It was unpleasant and painful, and I did it for you. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bulletproof Coffee, working to turn your morning coffee into a favorite breakfast treat. You don't need a fancy coffee maker, just a unique recipe. Imagine a cross between a latte and a breakfast smoothie designed to keep you full and energized for hours. Visit Bulletproof.com and you'll get $10 off your first order when you enter the coupon code NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the How to Do Everything podcast with Mike and Ian. Among other things, they can help you find giant insects, talk about the stock market, and welcome extraterrestrials. Mike and Ian are here for you. How to Do Everything is modern life lessons from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our show this week was recorded at Johnny Brenda's in Philadelphia. And my next guest is actually a repeat guest. He's the director of the Mutter Museum of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, Dr. Robert Hicks. Welcome, Dr. Hicks. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. So 
I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of people who are from Philadelphia probably already know what the Motor Museum is. But folks who might be listening around the country might not know. Um, so what is the Motor Museum and what is in its collection? Well, we are certainly the place where you see things you cannot see anywhere else. <laughs> Technically, we are a museum of medical pathology, although we have to broaden that a bit. Medical humanity is represented. Uh, we have about 150,000 plus people coming through every year, but it is a collection distinctly medically oriented. We have body parts. Yes, we have babies in jars. We have lots of things <laughs> in between. I like that you're ready. Like your stock answer has to involve the phrase, yes, we have babies in jars. <laughs> like, look, I know what your next question is. It's going to be, do you have babies in jars? The answer is, yes, we do have babies in jars. <laughs> I thought I would just save a little time. <laughs> But the, the, the museum, um, in some ways now, it's a museum that's a sort of represents a, a combination of kind of uh, curiosity and kind of marveling at the human condition. But uh, when it was started by the mutter from the title, it was like a practical thing, right? It was a practical thing. The, the parent institution is the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, professional fraternal organization, and this started the same year the Constitution uh, was drafted. So we have some doctors that got together, as they said, to pool our talents to relieve human suffering. That's why the collection exists. The museum part started uh, during the time of the Civil War, over 150 years ago. It was originally just a collection of heroin? <laughs> well, the aforesaid Dr. Mutter uh, had his own collection for teaching and research purposes, and he gave it to the college with an endowment since he was pretty prosperous due to his private practice. This is a guy practicing before the Civil War who was an innovator in plastic surgery. So what, what did surgery even mean in the pre-Civil War era? Like, I know what a surgeon is in, in 2015, um, but what was it in 1800? Well, it still meant cutting somebody open. But before the Civil War, this is pre-antibiotics, this is pre-antisepsis, so the idea of opening a chest cavity or an abdomen or your head meant pretty near 100% chance of infection. So most physicians before the Civil War may have set a leg, lanced abscesses, maybe done some minor surgery, but to open the body, repair organs, was very rarely done, almost not done, until after the war. Well, during the war and after the war. So if he was a plastic surgeon, what does that mean that he did? He was renowned for curing hair lips and improving people's appearance and ability to close their mouths. Uh, he had other forms of plastic surgery he innovated where people had burns and skin grafts. So they were able to do some of that even before the Civil War. When you became director of this museum, did it change the way you thought about your own body and especially your own mortality? Oh, yes. Uh, and that's the subject, mortality, how we view our own bodies, almost a daily subject. And I suppose there's a peculiar humor that we at the museum exercise with one another and with other like-minded curators, things that if overheard by a lot of the public might not go over too well. But... Uh, we recently hosted a national conference called Death Salon, hosted uh, or run by people on the West Coast who have formed what they call the Order of the Good Death. Uh, some people may have read the book Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, the author of, of that book, Mortician, trying to raise the veil on the secrecy and the lack of conversation about death, how we die, what happens to our bodies. 
Well, you can't work in the Mütter Museum without having these conversations. So I think for all of us, uh, it's certainly taken the raw edge off of mortality when we look into these specimens in our own museum and see ourselves. So speaking of raw edges, um, you were kind, I'm going to generously use that word, enough to bring some stuff from the museum here to share with me. Um, Don't get so smug, Dr. Hicks. I'm here. It's my show. I agreed to this for some reason. Um, I I don't know what these things are, um, but I guess we have to start that part of the interview. You're going to need some gloves, perhaps. Oh, gee whiz. We need the gloves on to handle museum specimens, not because of what they'll do to us, but because of what we do to them. Just the oils on your hands are enough to make corrosive marks on metal items, for example. And for anything biological, well, we can't always be sure what the preserving fluid is, but we won't touch those tonight. Thank you. That's very comforting. Do we bring out the first object? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. What we have here is a black box. Always love black boxes because they have surprises inside. (laughs) And this is a black box that dates from the 1940s. And... Uh, for steampunk aficionados, this is, this is a, a Christmas treat. And uh, I, I think if anyone needs to buy John Waters a Christmas present, this is the <laughs> instrument for him. Now, I'm going to plug this in. I can only describe what you have just pulled out of this box as something that Christoph Waltz would be holding if he was playing the bad guy in a movie. <laughs> there are knobs. There's like a, a there's like a, maybe that, what's that, a walnut veneer maybe? Yes. It's nice. It's like the interior of a luxury car. And there's some terrifying knobs and some kind of, you're holding some kind of probe. Yes, that's exactly what. This is a commercial product called the Renew Life Model R Ultraviolet Generator. This was sold for health purposes. It has a variety of strange shapes in these glass, uh, look like glass ampules, but they're extensions to put on this rod. Now, I have to tell you, this is 1940s electronics, which means they're not electronics. We have plugged this in, and why don't you give me your forearm and pull your sleeve back a little bit? We wanted to pick a few items that had sound. Oh, good, good, good. Here, I'll do this on myself. There's fire inside there. That felt good. Okay. Um, okay, so I'm extending my forearm now. And I'm going to give you... A What's going to happen when I do this? Because I would love You're, a preview. Some a, a tingling sensation. Tell me if it feels good. Ah, no! Now, I just took this instrument and put it next to your wrist. And, uh, That's correct. Discharge. has a nice violet light that appears into the glass. So this is not something that I think most physicians would endorse today, but it also shows you electricity has been around in medicine for a real long time. Even during the Civil War, there were devices commercially sold, even before the war, that were self-electrical generating devices that could really uh, produce a lot of voltage. And some of them were designed to be used 
with you as the patient, me as the operator, we make a circuit, machine, me, you, which would have been interesting for all concerned. So this one doesn't <laughs> deliver that kind of voltage. Um, and what's interesting is, Dr. Hicks, I am a migraine sufferer, and you know there was the FDA recently approved a like I don't know if you guys remember um, uh, Jordy LaForge from Star Trek wore that weird headband. Uh, the FDA recently approved for the treatment of migraine a headband not unlike that one that like this one delivers a controlled uh, electrical charge through the skin to the brain that purportedly is supposed to help migraine. So this is like not an in- as crazy as it is that you just use this terrifying monster knife to deliver electricity to my skin. There are even now medical uses. Oh, yes. And another lesson one learns at the Mütter Museum is that yesterday's passe, even laughable technology sometimes has a way of coming back in in a legitimate way. You mentioned that example. Uh, Even cancer sufferers. Uh, My stepmother died of cancer. She had to have a big section of hip removed. One way they tried to get the hip functioning again after the insertion of a steel rod was to apply a device that generated an electric current to stimulate bone growth. So we see these things are still there. They still lurk. So I'm not going to be one to simply say this instrument and all its applications has no use whatsoever. I'm not sure. Well, Dr. Hicks, let's see what else you, this awful woman offstage (laughs) has for me. All right. Uh, The next item also... uh, we chose because it makes a sound. Okay. Much more modest. I have what looks like a little silver mallet and a little silver, looks like a uh, long pointed thing with a needle. It looks like something, if I was going to describe what it looked like to me, I would probably say brain extractor. (laughs) And you would be dead to rights. (laughs) This uh, makes a nice little sound. As you would insert this needle through the orbit, the eye, through a not too dense part of the skull, into the brain, and you uh, effectively create a frontal lobotomy, or a partial frontal lobotomy. This tool was developed by a Dr. Walter Freeman. Now, there are TV specials about him. There's a lot of literature about him, a lot of Internet sites. This man is the father of this form of lobotomy. And after World War II, he pioneered this technique and even went on the road with his car, which he called his lobotomobile, (laughs) teaching doctors. And I should say, he didn't use gloves when he performed this surgery. And he estimated that he himself conducted close to 3,000 surgeries with this device. There was a mortality rate that in some cases reached 15% of his patients. One of his most, in fact, probably his most famous patient was one of the Kennedy clan, Rose Kennedy, sister of Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy, who probably had serious developmental disability. She had this lobotomy done, this ice pick lobotomy, as it was called. And as a result, she was a mess afterwards and had to be institutionalized. And for the very visible Kennedy family, she was the invisible Kennedy. And she died in 2005. So she is a legacy of this. It was a short-lived phenomenon before Freeman was more or less pushed out of the, uh, into the margins as a physician for this technique. But even was, as he was advocating this, there were physicians who said, no, wait a minute, do we really know this works? Is there really good science behind this? 
But it's an example that even in the medical profession, as in anything else, there are fads. This one caught public imagination. Freeman had a very clear vision of how this works and why it would work based on a lot of assumptions that were not necessarily true. He wanted to get at the thalamus, that little part of the brain connected with emotion, in order to get rid of the aggressive behaviors of some people with severe mental disorders. And so this pick, that mallet, through the eye, up into the brain was meant to do the trick. So ice pick lobotomy. That's what our tools are today. Just to be clear, you're not going to demonstrate that one on me, right? <laughs> I'll stick with the electricity. Although, uh, Dr. Freeman pointed out, this doesn't require a lot of skill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, there are a lot of things that don't require a lot of skill if you're willing to accept a 15% mortality rate. <laughs> It's like, let's just, like, if I said, like, you know, a lot of people think cooking fish is hard, but it doesn't require a lot of skill. If I was killing 15% of the people I served fish to, like, you would say, like, yeah, maybe you should go to culinary school. Hey, guys, it's Jesse. I'm, I'm just breaking in to let you know that while the things we have been discussing for the last few minutes were pretty gross, uh, the next thing is super gross. It involves the skin, if you have any weird skin issues. Um, it's great, but uh, if you've got issues, you can just skip ahead three minutes and you'll skip right past it into the promised land. So, uh, just so you know, you've been warned. All right, so let's see something else. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm ambivalent about what you just said. Okay, now this is just a mason jar. You're just having a wedding in 2013. <laughs> I, I'm holding a glass, what well, looks like a, a little mason jar, uh, but inside, what does it look like to you? I am going to say it looks like potpourri or possibly pencil shavings uh, or maybe like a dried, dried flower petals. Delicate, yes. Flower petals, no. This is human skin. Oh, gross. <laughs> no, that's terrible. No, well, we I have a even. lot of old things in our museum. This is a new thing. And this is an example of... I heard, I've heard that this is the hot new thing. <laughs> I, it is a hot I new thing. I read something in the New York Times style section about this. <laughs> Everyone in Greenpoint has a jar of human skin now. One of our collecting interests is to get objects that speak to 21st century maladies. And this is a good example. This is from a person. This jar of skin peelings is from a compulsive peeler of her skin and her feet. Now, Yo, hold on. This is a woman in her 20s. That's the first one of those we've gotten. He's literally holding the skin and was already. You just are upset because he was compulsive? <laughs> it wasn't a casual skin peeler. There's a jar of skin there. This is a jar of skin. And uh, this would have caused some fairly serious problems for the feet. This woman contacted us and said, look, I have a roommate who has a problem of compulsive skin peeling, and she's kept it all in a jar. Do you want it? We said yes, because this is an object that speaks to a mental disorder called dermatillomania, compulsive skin peeling, which is very common, getting more common. Most of the people who do this are women. Not all, but most. Uh, the woman who gave us this, who said it was her roommates, finally owned up that she herself had peeled this. And so we accessioned these in the collection, and then she sent us a second jar. 
So these are skin peelings, and uh, I suppose we could pop the lid if you want to take a whiff. No, that's fine. No, I don't think I can quite get this one off. Uh, but I've tried it. Romano cheese is uh, what I identify. I um, So dermatillomania, you have, these are skin specimens. This dermatillomania primarily afflicts women. And as soon as you said that, I was imagining like, uh, like a, a stand-up comedian on like evening at the improv in 1987, like pushed up sleeves and like, Guys, you know how chicks are always compulsively peeling skin from their feet and keeping it in a jar? Am I right? Am I right? And you are right, and here's the proof. Do we have one more thing? Is there a... I'm guessing this will be the one that makes me feel the most comfortable. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm. I'm, I'm holding what looks like a, a strange uh, Star Trek device. But it's a handle. You're holding what looks like a strange Saw series device. <laughs> Let's be clear about our filmic references here. So I have a handle, and at right angles to the handle are two parallel rods. One rod has a loop, and the other one has what looks like a little fork. And that loop is about the size of like a penny or... Maybe you can get a quarter in there. It's a, it's a little oblong. So, and the, the fork has barbs on it, it like a fishing lure. Exactly. Exactly. So when they go in... So this is a fishing lure? You fish for tonsils. Oh, snap. Now, this, this device is a tonsillotome. It's also known as a tonsil guillotine. And imagine a guillotine, scale it down to hand-sized, and stick it in your mouth. So what we do with this, when a tonsil was removed. The tonsil would be in the form of an enlarged tissue at the back of your throat. And uh, you would, first of all, put the tonsil in the center of the loop. First of all, you would use some kind of thing to unconscious the person. Oh, thank you the, for mentioning You guys that. are familiar with the verb to unconscious, right? Uh, no. Ah! But we can, at the time, this is a 19th century tool. At the time, they would put a solution of cocaine over the tonsil in order to deaden it. So the your this was actually not used. Things. This was actually not used again until the music industry in the mid 1980s. <laughs> so once we uh, put the loop over the tonsil mass, and we're going to remove this, we then press the second parallel lever with the fork, and the fork impales the thing. So you have the tonsil in the loop impaled by the fork. So the first step is basically spear fishing for tonsils. Once we have it looped and speared, then we retract the loop very quickly as a oh, guillotine. Oh, my and it goodness cuts, gracious. It cuts the tonsil off at the base. Remove it, five-second surgery, it's done. Tonsil out. Tonsil guillotine. Available at your local hardware store. <laughs> well... Uh, Dr. Hicks, um, as an adult, I've had a lot less uh, bad dreams than when I was a kid, and I really appreciate you correcting that <laughs> tonight. Uh, thank you for joining us, and thank you for the amazing work you do at the Mutter Museum. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Dr. Robert Hicks is the director of the Mutter Museum. You can visit the museum in downtown Philadelphia or at muttermuseum.org. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our musical guests for our Philadelphia live show are a punk band out of Westchester, a pop-punk band specifically, which I know isn't the hippest genre of music. But they were recommended by one of my favorite music critics. And as soon as I heard them talk about their music and heard the music itself, I I knew that they weren't the, um, oh, I don't know, Orange County mouth breathers that some people might associate with the genre of pop punk. Actually, they're really brilliant, interesting, uh, deep and heartfelt guys. and, And their songs are really amazing. Their third album was just released this past summer. It's called Mabel. This is Sprainerd and their song, Applebee's Bar. I am every person that you've ever ignored. I am the flaming bag of darkness on your porch. Used to think I was a savior, a part of the cause. Now see, I am nothing, no nothing. Applebee's Bar. Their latest album is called Mabel. You can hear their full set on our website, MaximumFun.org, and find out more about Sprainerd by visiting SprainerdBand.tumblr.com. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian X. Perello. Production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Greg Mungan, who engineered our live show, and to everyone at Johnny Brenda's who helped make the show possible. Hey, you know what was really fun? When I went to see the great movie Creed, and then Johnny Brenda's was totally in it. That was great. Anyway, if you'd like to hear any of our past programs or segments, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, please check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a fun discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by the brilliant and hilarious comedian Guy Branham. This week, 
The gang are joined by Tracy Wigfield, who's written on 30 Rock, The Mindy Project, and several past Golden Globe ceremonies to talk about last week's Globes. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.